Um, so we've been, again, just talking about uh, being a son and a daughter of God uh, the past probably month, two months, whatever it's been. And I feel like the Lord has been kind of just taking us on a journey of re-identification, um, just re-identifying us and, and who we are and, and uh, how, we, how we or how the Father sees us. And, and in that, I believe that the Lord is just going to bring us such a confidence in us to be able to affect the culture around us. And so I, I just, I, I, every week I'm like, man, should I move on to a different subject? And I just keep hearing the Lord every week just saying, just take your time, slow down, and, and really grasp this idea of sonship. But, but I feel like uh, the Lord was just, is taking, us, is, is taking us deeper each week into this. Um, first, we started talking about family, how the church is, is not just a congregation of people, but we're a family, like we're doing this thing together. Uh, but then he, went, he took us a step further, and we talked for a long time about how he, he sees us as sons and daughters, that we are not figuratively sons and daughters, but we are actually sons and daughters of God, and that in that we are brothers and sisters in that. And so the, we went from family to an even more specific focus, which was being sons and daughters of God. And now I think he's taking us a little bit deeper into focusing us on being not just sons and daughters, but the beloved of God. That not only are we his sons and daughters, but that he actually likes us, that he loves us, that he cares deeply for us. And I feel like the Lord is just narrowing in and getting more and more personal with this message of of, of us being in the family of God, that we are in the family, we are sons and daughters, but more than that, we are actually beloved. And the word beloved, just all that word means is so simple. It just means it's the object of one's affection, that we are the ob object of God's affection, that he loves us, that we are called beloved. And so I want to talk to you this morning about being the beloved and how God sees us as the beloved. So we're going to first look here in Matthew 3. Chapter 3, and starting in verse 13, and we're going to go through 17. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And listen to this next part, verse 17. Oops, okay, verse 17. The heavens open, and the Bible says that God says, this is my dearly loved son, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. This is my dearly loved son in whom I am well pleased. There's, there's three times in the New Testament that is recorded that Jesus aud or that God audibly spoke concerning Jesus that other people heard. And two of those three times, it was simply to say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is making this declaration, or God is making this declaration to the crowd of people that is there witnessing the baptism of Jesus, and he comes to declare who this man is, and he doesn't say he's the Messiah. He doesn't say he's a great uh, prophet. 
He doesn't say he's the healer of the sick. He doesn't say he's the one that's going to raise the dead. He doesn't even say he's the one that's going to die on the cross to save us from our sins. When God introduces Jesus to the world, his declaration was, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The most important thing about Jesus was that he was God's beloved son. And that's the declaration. That, that is what God felt was the most important thing for everybody to know about Jesus. Not that he was the Savior of the world, but that he was my beloved son. And the amazing part about that too is he says, there it is, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. At this point in Jesus' ministry, he's just starting the ministry. He has yet to perform a single public miracle. And, Jesus, and God stands before the crowd and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That before Jesus did a single thing on the, on the earth, before he did a single thing, God says, I am well pleased with my son. That it's not a performance-driven thing, not even with Jesus. That Jesus didn't even have to perform for the Father, for the Father to be pleased with him. And, and so you see this, like I said, two out of the three times. And the third time, God talks about Jesus, he, he says, I'm about to glorify your name. And so, so we see this two out of the three times, Jesus says, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. What mattered most to God was that people knew Jesus was beloved. Amen. And I already told you, I believe the Father is taking us on a, or a, a journey of re-identification. And what I want to begin to share with you this morning, and I don't know how many Sundays in a row we're going to talk about this. It may just be this Sunday. It may be 30 Sundays. I don't know. But I feel like the Lord is wanting us to begin to live our lives not just as sons, but as beloved. And I believe that once we, once we begin to understand that and receive that revelation of belovedness, it's going to change absolutely everything. Absolutely everything. Amen? <clears throat> I'm sorry, my voice is going. I'm going to try really hard to keep it, to finish this today. So I'm going to need some extra emphasis from all of you this morning to let me know that you actually heard what I said. Amen? Amen. Awesome. Awesome. All right, so, so we see this in Jesus, that Jesus that God calls Jesus his beloved. But I want to show you through the life of John what this looks like to be, to be beloved. So John, John is uh, James's brother. So we have James and John. And what does the Bible call James and John? Does anybody remember? Sons of Thunder, the coolest nickname in the Bible. Man, the Sons of Thunder. Why does, John, why does Jesus give him this nickname, the Sons of Thunder? Well, let me, let me tell you why, because James and John, if you, if you look at their lives and you look at their interactions, man, these guys were bold as lions. They were bold as lions. Uh, so let me show you a couple of verses. So John, I believe it's John, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 20. So Jesus is sitting there with the 12 disciples. And uh, this, this story I would think would be a little embarrassing. Like if I were John, I don't know if I would include this in the gospel because John, or Jesus is sitting there with the disciples, and James and John's mama approaches Jesus, okay? So it says, the mother of the Zebedee, sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one at your right hand 
and the other at your left hand in your kingdom. Now, at this point in time, James and John are probably at least in their 20s, I would guess, and mama has to go to Jesus and ask for a position of authority for her sons. I don't know about you, but that's embarrassing, right? That's embarrassing. It's like, man, you want to be co-rulers in God's kingdom, but you can't even ask for the spot yourself. You have to have mom go do it. I don't know. Anyways, so he says to her, uh, is, that, is that all I had in that verse? I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, we are able. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and you'll be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. It's a lot of baptisms. But it, to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. But it is for those, but it's for whom it is prepared for by my father. Let's, let's go ahead and just stop there. Um, <clears throat> because the important thing, I've already said the important thing I want you to see from this verse, is that, that, the, that John was so bold into asking for a seat of authority. He was vying for this seat of authority from Jesus. He wanted to, because at this point in time too, they're still thinking earthly minded, that this kingdom of God was an earthly kingdom. That Jesus was going to overtake this Roman rule and that he was going to have this earthly kingdom. So you see James and John here that they're vying for this place of authority, that they're trying to earn their spot in this seat uh, beside Jesus in his kingdom. And so you, you see that here. Let me take you to another verse that's kind of cool about John. Not cool, but you'll, you'll see what I mean. Luke chapter 9, <clears throat> Luke chapter 9, verse 51. It says, Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. So a little context well, actually, we're going to read the context. Keep going. And sent messengers before his face, and as they went, they entered the village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. Verse 53. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, you ready for this? They said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Now, hold on a second. Do you want me to call fire from heaven and kill these people that didn't accept your invitation to the party? Like, <laughs> it's a little intense, right? It reminds me, have you have ever seen the movie Bolt? Bolt, it's a cartoon. If you don't have young kids right now, you probably don't. You have? Okay, there we go. The movie Bolt, well, I have one person, so nobody's going to get this reference. Just skip it. No, don't skip it. All right, for you guys, I'll say it. It's that scene where Bolt, or when uh, Bolt is going back to, to uh, save the girl, and, uh, and the cat is there with him. This is going to sound so funny to all of you who don't know the movie. <laughs> and you've got, and you've got um, what's, the, what's the hamster's name? It just left me. What is it? Nobody knows. <laughs> this, is, this is a flop. All right. <laughs> Anyways, the hamster is all, you know, he's all about the spy life and, and everything. Yeah, I'm getting some nods, okay. So anyways, the cat is, is he, he says there's some bad guys ahead, and basically he just says, I'm going to go break their necks, and it, never mind. It doesn't, it's, I've totally just lost all of you now in that. Anyways, he calls down, he says, do you want me to call down fire from heaven? So John, 
<laughs> so John, uh, you're all going to have to go see the movie now. So, no, maybe not. So John, John, first he's vying for this position of authority. Now he's like, God, do you, do you want me to call fire down from heaven and smite your enemies? Is basically what he's saying here. And Jesus is just kind of like, whoa, you know, <laughs> step back a little bit, John. And, and he says, he goes back and he says in verse 55, Somewhere in verse 55, or do I not have 55 as well? I prepared really good for this message today. Anyways, Jesus basically just says, you know, that, and, and has him step back and he says, you know, that's not necessary, basically is what, what Jesus says to John. So you see this in John, this, this, this son of thunder attitude, right? He's, he's striving to get this position of authority. He's wanting to, to exude his power that has been given to him. And you see this in John. So this is kind of the guy who John is. This is kind of a, gives you a feel for how John is. He's the son of thunder. He's, he's, he's a type A personality. He's a go-getter. He's fighting for that position of authority. He's wanting to exude the power that has been given to him uh, from the Father. So you see these attributes in John. But then something happens to John. Something happens to John. We'll look at it in verse John 13, verse, or in John chapter 13, so Jesus and the disciples are reclining at the table at the Last Supper right before Jesus is about to go to the cross. And as you're reading the account of, of what is happening in the Last Supper, there's this tiny little verse that is easy to overlook, but I'll show you how significant it was to John. It says this, it says, Now, being on Jesus... On Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So leaning on Jesus' chest was one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. And then the story kind of moves on from there and talks a little bit more about Judas's betrayal and all of this. But there's this one little sentence that, again, just it's easy to look past because it's so quick, but it was so significant in John's life, because after this moment in the Bible, John completely changes. So much so that in the book, John, that he wrote, that he authored, after this moment, he never even uses his own name anymore. When he describes himself in the book of John after this moment, he simply says, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He doesn't say John the Apostle. He doesn't say John the disciple of Jesus. He says the disciple in whom Jesus loved. That's how he describes himself. And this moment was so significant in John's life. In fact, he references, references it later in John, in John chapter 20. Go ahead and go, I think I have it up there. John chapter 20, maybe I don't. I haven't been very good here recently. But in John chapter 20, he references it. And he says, John, who wrote the gospel, he says, he, he, he says, uh, John chapter 21, I'm sorry, I told you wrong. John chapter 21, he says, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he, he describes himself once again as the disciple whom Jesus loved and describes this moment once again in John chapter 20, where he laid his head on Jesus's chest and so, and so it was important enough to John to describe it, to reiterate that moment again later on in John chapter 21. But not even that, 
later on in 180 AD, the early church fathers even mentioned in their writings when they were confirming that John was the writer of the book of John, they said this, they said, last of all too, the disciple of the Lord who leant against Jesus' chest himself brought out the gospel while he was in Ephesus. So the, even the early church fathers, the ones that were carrying on the gospel after the disciples had passed away, even the early church fathers saw the importance of this moment to John that they even mentioned when they were describing who wrote the book of John, when they were confirming that it was John who wrote the book, they, did, they, they made sure to reference this moment in John's life where he laid his head on Jesus' chest. And after that moment, the most important thing about John was not the seat of authority that he was striving for before. It was not the power that he had from the Holy Spirit to do miracles. What became the most important thing to John was that he was dearly loved, that he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. And that became his identity. So much so where he doesn't even use his name anymore. He said, and there's examples, I have him up there, but again, my track record actually getting him up there is not good apparently this Sunday, so I'm just going to tell you about him. But there's, re there's instances throughout the Bible where it says that after, after Mary had told the disciples that Jesus had risen from the dead, it, the account says that Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved got up and ran to the tomb. He references Peter. He says everybody else's name, but he says of himself, the disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple whom Jesus loved. That he that the Lord had, had stripped away his identity down to this one thing, that nothing else mattered in his life. Not his position, not his, his title, not what he did, but simply that he was loved by God. And I believe that's what the Lord's wanting to do to us this morning and what he's been doing to us, for us, and through us, through this whole process of talking about family and being sons and daughters, is he's wanting to strip that old identity, that false identity of who we are, down to one thing, that we are God's child and who is dearly loved, that we are the beloved of God, that we are the ones that he has set his affection upon, and that through that it'll change absolutely everything. That when we get stripped down to that one thing, that it changes absolutely everything. I was going to talk to you this morning. My original thought this week was moving into this idea of devotion and uh, moving into this, this, to a place of devotion. And we'll probably get to that. Amber actually had some, some really amazing revelation on devotion that I was going to totally rip off of her and uh, share, share with you. But as I was pondering that, thinking that, the Lord just said to me, he said, devotion will always be ritualistic, will always be task-oriented until we come into the place of beloved identity. Until we come into the place where we go to the Father, not because we're trying to earn His favor by praying and by doing our Jesus Calling devotional, which is all incredible. Don't, don't mishear me. I love Jesus. If you do Jesus Calling, it's absolutely amazing. But it becomes just a ritualistic task until you can come to that place, not vying for God's affection, but realizing we already have His affection. 
it becomes totally different. It becomes not a thing that you do to earn any favor. It becomes a thing you do because you're just going to that place to be loved and to love. And it totally changes everything. It, it changes the way we even, we act ourselves. I'll tell you what, the first step to, coming, to uh, overcoming envy, the first step to overcoming jealousy, of, of, of overcoming um, feeling inadequate, is to realize that we are beloved. Because when you realize that you are beloved, that you are the one whom Jesus loved, then it's okay if somebody's a little better at you than something. Because it's not a performance-based kind of love. So when we begin operating out of beloved identity, man, it, it revolutionizes every part of our lives. And we're no longer competitive and trying to be the best and trying to, to, uh, trying to be better than the next person or beating ourselves up for maybe not being as good or beating ourselves up for maybe not spending as much time in our devotion as we should or beating ourselves up for, for whatever the thing is because we realize that our, our identity is not rooted in those things. Our identity is rooted in just the simple fact that we are loved, that we don't have to do those things to earn anything, that we get to do those things and that those things are byproduct of being loved, but it's not the thing that causes us to be loved. And our life just gets totally set free when we come into that realization that we are beloved. Just like Jesus, before Jesus did a single miracle, he was God's beloved son. I'm telling you, that's the most important thing about you. It's the most important thing about me. And this is something I have to deal with even as a pastor, as a leader, you know, that my position isn't, doesn't get me any closer to the kingdom. But being a dearly loved son, man, that's everything. That's absolutely everything. I want to close with this story. So, so the question then is, is, is how, do we, how do we come into that identification where it's not performance driven? How do we come into that? And, and the short answer is, is this verse right here that John had this experience where he leaned on Jesus' chest and heard his heartbeat. And, and so the, the short answer is proximity. The short answer is drawing near to the Father, getting as close as we can so we can hear what he says about us. But I want to illustrate it to you in this story. <clears throat> so the story goes, of, the story's about a Jewish family who had this young boy, their only child, and this, this Jewish family was very strict. They followed the law to a T. And they, they lived very uh, honorable lives. And in every Jewish family, there comes a time where their, their child is become, uh, uh, become old enough to be sent off to the synagogue to, to learn the ways of the law, to learn the ways of God. And, and for a Jewish family, it's, it's the highest importance. It's the highest honor to be able to send your son or your daughter to the synagogue to learn the ways of God, to learn the ways of the Jewish people, to learn from the great rabbis to teach them. And so this, this young Jewish family, uh, their son, their only son, who they love dearly, who they, who they cherish, comes old enough to be sent off to the synagogue to learn the ways of God, to learn the Jewish customs from the great rabbis. And so the day comes, they, 
they sit their son down and they tell him, son, this is extremely important for your life. That this moment is one of the biggest moments of your life. That this will change everything. And this is of extreme importance for you to do this. So they tell him this. And then they send him off to his first day at the synagogue. A few hours later, he comes back home. And they notice that the little boy has some leaves in his hair. And his clothes are a little bit tattered and they're dirty. And they look like they maybe have been wet. And they ask their son, they say, son, how, how was your first day at the synagogue? And they realize that he never showed up. That on his way to the synagogue, he saw a tree and a pond. And he got distracted by the tree and the pond. And he began playing in the tree and in the pond. And, and he spent his whole day just swimming in the pond and climbing the tree. And didn't go his first day of the synagogue. So his parents sit him down and they sternly, they tell him, son, you cannot do this. You have to go learn from the rabbi. This is extremely important for you. This is extreme. This is a high honor for you to go learn from the rabbis. You have to show up to the synagogue. So they warn him sternly that if you do this again tomorrow, you will be in trouble. So the next day comes, the father thinks, I think I've, I, he heard it in the tone of my voice. He knows I mean business. And so surely this time I've taken care of the problem. The son of mine will go to the synagogue and learn from the rabbis. <clears throat> Sends him off to school. A few hours later he comes back. He's got leaves in his hair. His clothes are a little dirty. Looks like he's been swimming all day. His father rips right into him. Son, what did I tell you? I told you to go to the synagogue, that you would, there would be repercussions for not obeying our, 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 my rules, not obeying what I have told you to do. And at this point in time, the whole community learns of the son's disobedience. And this Jewish culture, that this is a, a high, uh, the highest form of disgrace, that the son is disobeying the father. So the, the father and the mother are just totally embarrassed at the situation, which makes him even more angry at the son and makes him lay into his son even more. And he, he lays into his son even more harshly than he did before and, 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 and reprimands him. And then he thinks, this is it. Surely this has done it. Surely my son has gotten the message. So the next day, he sends him off to school. A few hours later, he comes home with leaves in his hair and been swimming in the pond. The parents don't know what to do. They, 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 they love their son dearly. It's breaking their hearts that he's being disobedient, but they don't know what to do. And they learn that the high rabbi, the great rabbi, is coming to town. The rabbi, the great rabbi, is known to be a hard man, known to be a stern man. It's a, it, the, the story says that he was, a, he was a man like a lion. He was fierce. And the father and the mother, they, they're talking. They're like, man, I don't want to bring my son to this man. But I don't think we have any other choice. And so they go, the father goes to the rabbi, the great rabbi, and he tells him all that the son has been doing, that he's been disobeying, that he's been... He skips, he doesn't, hasn't been to class yet, that he goes off into the woods and he plays. And the rabbi looks at the dad and he says, 
bring him to me. I'll fix this right now. Terrified, the father goes out into the hall to get his son. Terrified. He's, he, he doesn't want to have to bring his son before this man, but he also knows that if, if the son doesn't get this right, it's going to ruin his life. So he begrudgingly goes out, gets his son. He walks him into the room where the great rabbi is. And then he turns around and walks out the door. The father's in the, in the hall waiting for his son to be done, waiting for the great rabbi to be done with his son. And he's, he's just pacing back and forth. He's so terrified. He's running through his head. Man, did I do the right thing here? I, I mean, I love my son so much. I, I just don't want to see him hurt. I don't want to see him beaten up. You know, I don't want to see him down. And, and he just, he just began racking himself with guilt. Did I do the right thing? And finally, he can't take it anymore. So he goes to the door and he, he cracks open the door to see what's going on inside of the room with the great rabbi and his son. And when he cracked the door, and looked inside. What he saw was his son sitting on the father's lap, or on the great rabbi's lap, and the great rabbi just holding him and hugging him, not saying a single word, just pulling him against his chest and loving him. After a while, the son comes out of the room and doesn't really say anything. And they go home. The next day, they wake up. He sends his son off to school. The son goes to the synagogue, does his lessons, and on his way home, he stops at the tree in the pond and plays a while. The moral of the story is this. How do we get to the place of beloved identification? Man, we've got to sit in the rabbi's lap. We've got to get close to the rabbi. We've got to put our head on his chest and hear his heart for us. And we've got to realize that, that um, the answer for our sin, the answer for fixing our disobedience is not trying harder and harder to beat the thing. The answer for the sin problem inside of us is not forcing ourselves into submission and forcing ourselves into righteousness. The answer to our problem is to sit on the rabbi's lap and become the beloved son. Become the one that his affection is upon. And I guarantee you that that will fix any waywardness inside of us. We don't have to strive to be the beloved. We don't have to do a single thing to be loved by God. We just have to sit in his lap and let him love us.